If you love what you hear, check out our authors Andrea Stewart and N.A. Fulton on Amazon.com, and be sure to subscribe to our Dark Romance Novels and Stories podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast provider. Learn more about us at audioiron.com. Chapter 19. It took all Corwin's will not to betray her intentions to Black in the days before his departure. She spent many hours talking and cooking with the women in the village, took her meals with him, and shared his bed. She carefully avoided any mention of his trip to Virginia and its purpose, appeared reconciled to remaining on the island until he returned. But all the while she schemed and plotted, wondering who she could approach who would help her escape confinement and make her way home. Two days before the tide that would presumably take Devon away from her, she lingered in the shadow of the ship with the other women who were helping to pack the food and livestock their men would consume on the journey. She watched Adam hefting barrel after barrel onto his shoulder and carrying it onto the boat as if it weighed nothing. Saw Aubrey the ship's quartermaster logging every delivery and directing where it should be stowed. After a great deal of consideration she approached Adam as he crated small barrels of salted meat into a large wooden box that could stow more easily aboard. I need your help, she said, touching his arm. They had spoken not at all since he had carried her from Dujol's house so many months ago. In that time she had come to realize it must have been him who treated her after the beating, and that he had taken what steps he was able to protect her when he could. If any man on the ship could understand her fierce determination not to be held captive, it must be him. Thus she did not quail when the half-naked giant stood up straight and looked down on her. I am to bear a child, said Corwin simply. When this ship makes port in Virginia I can go to my brother who will return me to England. Will you help me escape? Adam did nothing for a long time, then looked up at the ship. Black was working to rig the freshly mended sails. Corwin knew Adam was thinking of all he could lose if his part in her disappearance was discovered. If you wish to come with me to Virginia, my brother will reward you for helping me. Adam looked back to her and shook his head sharply as if the offer were an insult. I'm sorry. I meant only that I know I am asking you to take a grave risk. His expression softened a little and he nodded. He pointed at her, then the ship then the sea, making it clear that he would help her escape. Adam's acceptance of her proposal filled her with the most intense feeling of loss and grief she had ever experienced, and simultaneously a feeling of hope that she might truly be able to bear her child in safety and love. I don't know how I can ever thank you. Adam shook his head and returned to his work loading barrels of meat into a wooden box. Corwin moved away then, rejoining the women who were working to salt fish and sugar fruit to join all the other supplies in the hold. On the evening before Black was due to depart, he made love to her gently. He caressed the length of her body and explored the waves of hair that cascaded everywhere. Wordlessly, with a feeling of deep regret and sorrow that pierced her bones, Corwin allowed herself to respond to his touch, to revel in the heat of his sun-kissed skin. The next morning he was up before dawn. Shaking her awake when he was fully dressed, he bent to kiss her farewell. Goodbye, said Corwin. 
eyes shut she remained curled up in the remains of the warmth he had left behind. Goodbye sounds far too serious. This is a swift trip. I'll return in a month with gifts and supplies. I will miss you very much, she said honestly, feeling tears well. It was hard to keep the grief from her voice. Really? A few days past you were begging me to let you go home. But now you will miss me? Many things can be true at once. I can miss those I love who I left behind, and I can miss those who leave me behind that I... And here Corwin stopped. Because she had been about to say she could miss those who left her behind who she happened to love. That you love. Black finished the thought for her and the word hung in the air for a long moment. Can it be your heart has softened a little toward me after so long? That my endless sins might yet be forgiven? I can hardly imagine such a thing. Corwin's response came unbidden, the words saying themselves before she could stop them. My lord, you are very cruel. You mock me for using a word which has no meaning for you but which is my foundation. My brother's love for me, my cousin's love for me, the love of the dead who poured their souls into my bones before you ever knew me. All that is good and kind and worthy in me is born from this thing you believe is a fiction. You think love is a feeling that ebbs, but I know that only love endures. It is everything else on this earth that passes away. One day I fear you will be forced to answer. Are you the beloved son your parents bore? Or are you the monster your uncle made you? She sat up to look at him, saw the startled look on his face, and something very like shame wash over him. He looked, for a long moment, as if he were a child of six or seven caught out for lying. But then his expression became sardonic and a little cold. Well, when I return you can school me further my lady. Who knows but that you may yet teach me the error of my ways. And then he was gone, striding from the room as if she had ceased to exist and he had the world to conquer. It took Corwin a long moment to recover from the dressing down she had given him, but then she realized her words were fitting. When he found she was gone in a month or so, perhaps he would recall her words and would consider building his life on love and the future rather than remaining in a life forged in the fires of hate, abuse, and revenge. To avoid thinking of a woman who might one day have a Devon Black who loved her, Corwin flew from the bed and struggled into the breeches and shirt she had filched from an old trunk of clothes. Black and she both had new lives to begin. Black's two trunks were stacked at the foot of the bed, waiting for someone to collect them. Corwin, exited into the hall and darted into the room next door. She retrieved a cask Adam had procured for her last night. Though it was small, she had already tried the fit and she knew she could comfortably remain within it until she was safely in the hold. A mallet waited inside, so she would require no help getting out. Rolling the cask into the hall, and then into Black's room, Corwin stumbled into Adam, obviously concerned that she wasn't there to meet him, he helped her into the cask and tapped the lid loosely into place. He made sure that the two air holes bored in the top were unobstructed, lest she suffocate during the trip to the ship. Then, Corwin heard him pick up the first trunk. In a moment he was gone. He returned for the second trunk, and then after a long wait, he came to collect her. Unable to see anything from the cask, Corwin felt herself carried to the bay where the ship stood ready to sail on the next tide. As she was carried up onto the ship she heard Aubrey the quartermaster say, Put her in the small hold with the fine goods and mind nothing else gets put on top. Corwin's heart leapt as she realized she had more than one confederate aboard the ship. Black's first mate and quartermaster was helping her to escape as well. She wanted to weep with relief and with sorrow all at once. This meant she would soon be on her way home and that she would never see Devon Black again. Once she knew she was safely stowed in the hold, Corwin used her mallet to free the cap on her cask. She resealed it then darted deeper into the darkness. She found a corner of the hold that had a bed, a small glass-covered port, some clean clothes, a pile of books, 
and some dried provisions. She could live several days without additional food or water. The mate and Adam had apparently thought of everything. At last, she thought sadly, I am free. Maya knelt before the cook fire, knees brushing the uneven stones that surrounded the pit, dark hair swinging dangerously close to the flames that licked the hanging cook pot. She ladled a stew of rice, beans, corn and salt pork out of the pot and onto the pair of trenches that waited by the fire. Then she slid the pot to the side of the pit. She used a stick to expose a broad flat rock lying under the red coals. A wooden bowl to her right contained a flour, water and fat mixture. Taking a piece of the sticky dough she dabbed at the rock, removing dirt and soot from its surface. Moments later she was cooking flat cakes by pressing the dough into the hot stone. When she had finished the task, she piled more wood onto the fire so it would burn until morning. Ben marveled at her expertise. She was so young, and yet she managed the preparation of the food as if she had cooked a thousand times in this fashion. He could never have been so proficient with the limited tools at their disposal. She brought his food to where he sat, back against the door of his quarters. The rest of the guards shared dinner, Raman women at a common cook fire but he and Maya always ate apart. How did you learn to cook this way? He asked as she sat down beside him. This how my people cook. She said after a moment. She used one of the cakes to collect a mouthful of food from the plate. She dropped the morsel into her mouth. Then she waited for Ben to take a bite. How you cook? This the only way you know. Ben was at a loss to explain the concept of a kitchen or a stove to her, much less acres of white linen or china plates. Obviously leavening bread with yeast, baking foods in an oven, even the use of eating utensils would be foreign concepts. He finally smiled. It is not important. He said. She nodded, as if easily accepting his dismissal. For a time they ate in silence, watching the sky fade from red and blue to black. When they were done eating she collected his trencher and placed it near the fire, then came to sit beside him again. After a little time she said, He practiced today. Ben looked down, noting that the firelight colored her skin a rich gold and her eyes sparkled with its light. She was quick, incredibly so, and already spoke English as well as any man on the plantation. He nodded. He has mother and father. He has three brothers. He has five sisters. I am girl. He wear dress. He eat food. He run fast. She turned to him for confirmation. He nodded and said. That is very good. What do you want to know today? Yesterday they had discussed their families. She had learned about his parents and Corwin. He had learned about her family. She had been captured on the coast as she was fishing. Ben had tried to explain that he had been captured while searching for his sister. Tell me more about your land. About the girls. She said, putting her head against his shoulder. Ben sighed. It was always so difficult to explain things to her. Things were different here, incomprehensibly different. His stories might have been in ancient Greek for all the sense they must have made to her. But still she wanted to hear them. And the nights here were so long, so lonely, it made no sense not to talk when she was so eager to learn. Do they look like you? They have pale skin and pale hair like me, but the rest looks like you. Do they have hair on their faces? No, their skin is smooth, like yours. He could still remember how she marveled at his facial hair. Her people had none, and when he had used his knife to cut his beard and trim his hair she had marveled that his skin was like hers beneath it all. And this? She asked, tugging at the dirty cotton dress she wore. It came only to her knees and it was just possible to detect symbols drawn upon it. They wear clothes a little like you. Their dresses go to their feet and are big around the bottom. 
She looked utterly bemused. He leaned forward to draw a picture in the dirt with his finger. She cocked her head to one side as she examined the crude image. How they walk? She asked, slowly. He replied with a smile. They do not run as you do. Are they pretty? Some of them. Ben felt his pulse leap. They had lived together for several weeks, and he had never touched her. He could remember the overseer, could picture what she had endured before she was given to him. He did not want to be one of the human animals to whom she submitted herself, did not want to do anything that might result in his child being born a slave. I am pretty. She lifted her eyes to his. Yes. You are very pretty. He did not know what else to say. She nodded as if affirming his words. They sat in silence for some time until they saw Manny emerging from the darkness. Without appearing to hurry, Maya rose and entered the cabin. English you smart. Today we work fast with less men, said Manny as he approached. He had put on more weight with his new position, calves becoming as thick as tree trunks, arms growing more massive by the hour. He was stronger too, often competing with other guards in wrestling matches that lasted late into the night. Thank you, said Ben. It was no surprise to him that with a malnourished and sickly workforce, a day or two of rest each week would result in increased productivity. You tell hands to move them in. Manny threw himself down onto the ground at Ben's side. I wanted to put the sick ones together, said Ben. He had thought long and hard about this decision. Sick men sharing such tiny quarters were guaranteed to share contamination. On the other hand, it would give the men who were well a better chance at survival. He had noticed that the coughing sickness seemed to leap to any man that shared quarters with someone who had it. The others will not get sick so quickly. They will live to work for more time. Clever English, said Manny. And we know more feed the sick ones. Ben felt a jolt of fury, worked hard to master it before he spoke. No. We feed them and make them work less. No. Said Manny, wrinkling his brow. If we feed them and they get better we get another strong worker. Ben spoke slowly though he thought his reasoning should be obvious to the most stupid of men. It costs less to make them well than to buy new ones. Manny shook his head. You crazy English. It is like horses. Our men are well-trained and hard to replace. Ben said through gritted teeth. It was hard to believe that common livestock were treated better than men here. Livestock cost more. After all, there were always more Indians to be captured, and a half-dozen black men cost far less than a good horse which might cost months to procure. Gwetri said Manny, struggling to his feet. It no work, but we will drink. When he was standing, he gave Ben a proprietary look. You smart man English. Weak, but smart. Then he strode away into the night, walking toward the fire closest to his little house. Ben rose and entered his own cabin. He walked a tightrope here, unwillingly responsible for slaves whose condition he found abominable. On one level he was their advocate and their benefactor, on another he was a conspirator participating in their imprisonment. Sooner or later he would be put in a position where he would have to sacrifice either his comfortable position here or his own humanity. He removed his shirt and lifted the thin blanket that covered Mare. She was nude, long body and well-formed limbs brown against the cotton sheet. Her eyes were open, watching him. Ben felt his pulse race as he examined her figure, the small breasts, slender hips. He wanted her wanted to descend into the heaven of her body and never emerge. He had never wanted a woman so much. He dropped the blanket and stepped away. Maya watched him. I do not want this, he said, meeting her eyes. She was silent, still watching him. I like you. You are pretty. We are friends, but I will not touch you this way. He realized that his voice was harsh and saw the hurt in her eyes. It is not safe, he said. Maya looked confused. He held his arms as if cradling a child and shook his head. 
He saw comprehension come into her eyes, watched her tears stop. He lay down on the hard floor beside her, reached under the thin blanket and took her hand. How hard it was not to tell her that he loved and admired her. How hard it was not to prove it with his body. Only the knowledge that neither of them had a future here could prevent him. Corwin stood on the deck dressed, for the first time in many weeks, like a respectable woman. The undergarments, crinolines and heavy dress felt awkward after so many months spent wearing practically nothing at all. Like everything else she had experienced since her escape from black, her clothes were going to take some adjustment. Aubrey had managed her transport from the ship via a dinghy, hiding her in one of the barrels he was ostensibly planning to fill with fresh water. He had subsequently hired a horse and then carried her before him to the navy shipyard where he left her a few streets from the gate where she could beg admittance. Aubrey then had handed her a pouch filled with heavy gold coins. When she had tried to thank him he had said, Please do not. It has taken me too long to do what I should have done months ago. And in doing it I betray a man who has saved my life a thousand times. Go in peace girl. I know we will all think of you often. A quarter of an hour later she had been led into a large office where she faced a hawk-nosed sour-faced man who eyed her simple shift, bare feet, and loose hair as if they branded her the most wicked slut he had ever laid eyes on. You asked to see me. Corwin noted Admiral Brooke did not offer her a chair. I didn't know where else to go. I'm Corwin Tyler Chase, and you are my brother's commanding officer. Corwin kept her back straight and looked him in the eye. I was. But your brother is no longer in Her Majesty's Navy. He left in search of you several months ago in response to a note delivered here. He went searching for me? When? Corwin could not believe her ears. Almost six months ago. The Admiral folded his hands. If I may inquire, where have you been for so long? Corwin had anticipated this question, and now concentrated on delivering the succinct story she had come up with. The Albatross was pursued by pirates and sank with all hands. I alone was saved. Pulled from the water by the loathsome men who had caused the loss of the crew, she paused, leaving him to imagine her fate aboard the pirate vessel. I was sold to a slave trader in Port Royal, who sold me to a pirate from Barbados. And the names of these pirates you spent so many months with? Admiral Brooke dipped his quill in ink. The captain who took the albatross was James Fitch. The second, who purchased me, was Edward Jacobs. Those names are unfamiliar. Can you describe these men for me? Yes. Corwin described two of the men who had visited her when she had been held captive by Dujols. Maybe their names and description would not result in a hanging, but it was a chance at revenge she would not pass by. Well, it is good that you have reported this to me. The information is duly noted. Since your brother surrendered his commission, without notice I might add, I am not in a position to do much more than advise you. If you please, sir. The man interrupted her rudely. I imagine you'll want some guidance in booking your passage home. Please see my assistant. He'll help you book passage on the next ship. I am assuming you have the funds required to cover your travel and some decent clothing. Corinne thought of her pouch of coins. They had looked to be all gold. Out of respect for the man I thought your brother was, and as a courtesy to your position, I will see you on a safe ship. But I must tell you young lady. I hold you responsible for all the misfortunes you have endured and for the end of a good man's service to his country. You should never have boarded a ship in London. This is no land for decent women and your brother had important work to do here. And without waiting for her reply he had rung a little bell. A man had appeared to usher her out of the office. Within an hour he was standing outside shops as she purchased clothes and other necessaries to travel with. 
and by the end of the day she had booked passage on the Elizabeth Jane leaving for Southampton on the morning tide, so it was that she stood on the cold deck looking into the sun as it rose over the deep blue sea. The sky was every color of gold and pink, and around her the merchant ship stirred with the voices and movements of a hundred hands. She was going home. Back to England, to her cousin, to her house. It felt very much like she was leaving parts of her soul behind her. Where was Ben? Had he really sailed after her to Port Royal? Her heart quailed at the thought of him there. And Black. She could imagine him aboard his ship, confident he would find her when he returned home. He would be first astonished and then furious that he had been betrayed. But she knew she had a responsibility to put herself and Black's child first. She was carrying a bastard, child of a pirate and a murderer, and only at Chase could she be delivered safely and protect the child of love in her womb. She could only imagine what the woman on the ship would think of her, traveling entirely alone. She knew they would wonder at her brown skin and sun-bleached hair. But she would keep to herself, eat meals alone, and live for London where she could turn to Christina for help getting back to Chase Manor. Pirate's Desire by Andrea Stewart. Voice recording copyright 2020 by Nancy Fulton. All rights reserved. Music by Alexander Schweif licensed from Pond 5.